so fundamentally, AI agents are are programmable, so they can leverage other interfaces to do things that they want. So one of the interfaces that they can use is the blockchain, and they can do this permissionlessly. So if, so for example, they can use ETH as the AI native money, or they can interact with uh, DeFi, or they can play games. And if they do that, uh, they can do that permissionlessly, and no one can stop them. So that can get a little bit scary. This episode is brought to you by Carbon. Carbon is a new DEX on Ethereum that makes concentrated liquidity super easy. With Carbon, LPs can now automate your liquidity strategy with custom on-chain limit and range orders, all from a beautiful UI. Check out Carbon today for unprecedented control over your liquidity. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Empire. Uh, very lucky to be joined by Chow Wang from Alliance today. Chow, welcome back to the show, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, one of my favorite, you're one of my favorite people to talk to about uh, broader, just how you're feeling about the market, kind of state of the market, um, mm-hmm. and, and what you're seeing. Really interesting and unique background from from Alliance. I think there are kind of like three places that we could go in this conversation. There's almost like state of the market. If you know, we're, we're 18, 20 months into this bear market now would love to maybe like just kick it off with how you're feeling about things. There's also a conversation around like, I think you and some of the team have been leading the conversation around AI and crypto and the intersection, those two kind of things converging, it feels like. Uh, and then there's a third bucket, which is you have this really unique experience from Alliance, seeing what chains that teams are building on and what teams are building and why they're having success and why a lot of them maybe aren't having success. So I'd like to go there as well, but let's kick it off with high level. Um, 18, 19, 20 months into the bear market. How are you feeling about the market today? Um, so there's uh, several aspects we can talk about. One is um, on the uh, venture side of things, on the pri- uh, private primary market, it's basically dead. Um, I don't know if, if you saw the uh, chart from, I think it was um, Difa Lama uh, about the month by month venture funding in crypto. I think we're at the lowest level since uh, the last bear market and uh, in terms of dollar amount. Um, and I don't even know if it's the bottom. Um, and, you know, no one is in a rush to, to, uh, to write checks right now. Uh, so valuations are going down still. Um, and fundamentally, it's just the, the fact that the private market generally lags the, the public market by maybe two, three, four quarters. So even if uh, Bitcoin has gone up 2x this year, uh, the private market has been bleeding actually slowly. Uh, so, so that's what I'm seeing in, in the primary market. Founders are having a very hard time fundraising. Um, public market, I really don't know. Uh, I mean, today, trade, Bitcoin's trading at 30,000. And it feels a little bit heavy because we we couldn't we couldn't pump on good news. So we had like really good you know Bitcoin ETF news. Uh, we had the XRP news, uh, which was a huge victory. Um, and um, somehow we can go above 30k. Uh, so it's a little bit worrisome. And then on the macro side, I, I have no idea. You know, uh, half a year ago, people were really bearish. You know, it was the most anticipated recession of all time. But then today, people are like, oh, maybe we're going to get the soft landing. I have no idea. I don't have an edge in that market. So um, we'll see. Yeah. Tell me more about the private markets in crypto. It strikes me that there's actually funds who might have some cash 
and they're sitting mm -hmm. on some dollars, either they are sitting on cash and don't want to deploy it, or they're almost timid to make a capital call to their LPs. And it seems like that's the reason that companies aren't getting funded is um, yeah. they actually have the money. They just, they, they, they just won't make the commitment and make the check. But tell me if I'm right or wrong there. Okay, so there, there's a few possible reasons. Uh, I don't know for a fact, but the few possible reasons are number one, um, th they do have the cash, but um, a year ago, they yoloed into uh, a bunch of you know, uh, deals at ridiculous valuations. Um, and now they just can't explain to their LPs. Um, they have to do a lot more due diligence. Also, a lot of them invested in, in some ridiculous failures, catastrophic, catastrophic failures like FTX, for example. So now they're doing a lot more diligence, due diligence, and they're uh, deploying a lot slower. But they do have the money. They're just not in a rush to, to deploy. Um, another possible reason is that, um, again, back to the earlier uh, point about the private market lagging the public market. So they're still feeling it out. So they, they are, everyone is aware that uh, valuations are continuing to go down, but no one knows when it'll bottom. Um, so no one wants to catch a falling knife, a very illiquid falling knife. Um, so that's sort of another reason. But it, to, personally, it, it's really mind boggling um, that you would expect the vast majority of uh, VCs to be uh, the kind of, you know, contrarian investors, you know, uh, be greedy when others are fearful kind of investors. But that is not the case right now. Everyone is fearful. Um, half a year ago when FTX happened, I thought that was the bottom because I've, I've never seen anything like that in the history of crypto. Like that was the worst, in my opinion, the worst event that has ever happened to, to crypto. I thought that was the bottom for the, uh, for the private market, but it was not like things are continuing to go down. Yeah, it's interesting. I think you're seeing a real divergence in the private markets in crypto right now between the series, the seed and series A companies and the, um, you know, the series B, series C and series D and the series C and series D are, are getting whacked, right? Valuations mm -hmm. are cut in some instances, 90%, right? Maybe they raised at 10 billion. Now they're raising a little chunk of change at, you know, one, 1. 1.5, right? They've been completely whacked. I'm actually, yeah. I don't know if you're seeing this. I'm seeing very interesting seed deals right now. Um, and I'm seeing seed uh, seed deals and fundraises get done, right? I'm, yep. you know, maybe it's in, maybe it's a new L2 or something, or maybe it's a consumer app, and it's a it's a reasonable valuation, it's ten fifteen million dollars. And yep. I think that's they can just get funded purely with maybe a couple very crypto native funds putting in a million or two each, and then a lot of angels. And I think yep. there's this those deals are happening, but the later the Series B, the Series C are completely dead right now. Yep, I think that's exactly right. And the, the 10 to 15 million range that you mentioned is spot on. That's what I'm seeing as well uh, on the seed at the C stage. Pre-seed is probably a lot lower. Yeah, that, that's where we are at. For, for example, uh, we're, we're, we prefer pre-seed. Um, but uh, and you're right that um, the later stage deals are not happening because um, everyone got wrecked. All the late stage VCs got wrecked that, that, that invested at, um, at the peak of the bull market. Um, but in general, deals are uh, there, there's fewer deals. Um, I also think there. I also feel there's fewer interesting projects, and that might be a result of just fewer developer activities uh, in the whole crypto ecosystem. So I don't know if you saw the uh, the report from Electric Capital. Um, so they have a, a live uh, 
data set on the number of uh, new developers going to crypto and the number of active developers in crypto. And those two numbers have been down 25 to 50% respectively um, from the peak, which was uh, about a year ago. So there's fewer people building crypto right now. A lot of them are, are pivoting to uh, to AI, for example. Yeah, which we'll talk about. Yeah. I'm I'm not going to force you to predict uh, the macro markets here, Chad, but I'm going to force you to give me a little prediction on on crypto markets. Yeah. Um, we we pulled up. Uh, if you can see, can you see this right here? Yep. So Mike and I shared this. We, have a, we do a company offsite at Blockworks every six months. Um, we shared this at the July 2022 offsite. We said bear markets come in four phases. Phase one is the, the blow up, right? This is the complete unwind. Euphoria roll, rolls over, leverage blows out. There are these rapid price changes down. And the enemy in this market is fear. Everybody is just terrified because things are collapsing so quickly. Stage yeah. two, which is where we were at in July 2022, we argued was the fallout, or maybe otherwise said it was forced capitulation. Everyone is angry. People were looking for someone to blame. You know, this is when a lot of angry tweets about Doquan, uh, Mashinsky, right? And the enemy yep. here is disenchantment. Just like, what are we, what are we doing here? Just this is, you know, this is a real bummer, right? Stage three, which I would argue we've been in for the last several months, is boredom. This yep. is bottomless exhaustion, complete silence, lack of attention. Things bullish news happens, but nobody cares. Peak floor and attention. And the enemy here is, is boredom. Um, I would argue that we are now coming out of stage three and into stage four, which Mike and I have kind of deemed the rebirth stage. This is when sparks of hope get brushed off. This is when Ripple beats the SEC. BlackRock announces a Bitcoin ETF. But because the enemy in this stage is disbelief, it doesn't do anything to the market. And I'm curious... Where you, if, first off, if you agree with these stages, and then the second more important question is, do you think that we're kind of heading into this stage four rebirth stage right now? Yeah, so um, I understand your stage one, two, three. I don't fully understand stage four. It, uh, uh, by the way, I agree with your one, two, three. Uh, but in my mind, stage four, to me, is the same stage as, as three. So... I, I can't. I can't make it this distinct in my mind, but I, I feel like we're, we're in the. We're, for, for me, we're still in the apathy boredom phase. Uh, and you mentioned that that the good news get uh, brushed off, uh, which is, which sounds like apathy to me. Um, and um, you know, I feel that because I, whenever I tweet these days, I, I get very little engagement. I feel like I, I'm yelling in the dark. Uh, no one listens to me. Um, so. Uh, I feel like we're, we're at that stage. Uh, so the, we're still in the, so that stage is, is where the market bottoms. It's a very long and um, arduous, um, lengthy uh, uh, bottoming process. So that usually takes maybe, let's say a year, if not more, uh, at least according to, to, the, to the last couple of cycles. But the thing that makes this cycle really different is um, the macro. Like we're, the, the whole crypto ecosystem is a lot bigger than the last cycle. So there's a lot more wealth effect uh, that leads to greater correlation between crypto and, and macro. So I, I can't, I have a hard time predicting where the public market will go in the next six to 12 months. I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, uh, with the macro. Uh, earlier this year, at the beginning of the year, I, 
I tweeted that um, I think we'll be a lot higher at the end of the year than at the beginning of the year. And so far, I'm, I'm right. Um, but from this point on, I really don't know. Uh, I think it's really 50-50. Yeah. yeah. I think one of the interesting things to watch next year is the, the proverbial fight between the macro, especially if we have a bad macro environment next year, this battle between the bad macro and the Bitcoin halving, right? Because historically... Crypto has obviously only existed in a pretty good macro environment. And every four years, we have this Bitcoin halving, which the four-year bull and bear market cycles are very tied into this halving. I remember yeah. exactly where I was in the twenty in May 2020 halving during COVID. I remember the seat I was sitting in. I remember what it did to the market. I remember what was happening on Twitter that day. And I'm looking ahead to this April, maybe May 2024 Bitcoin halving, which could very well kick off this next bull run. However, you've got this... This, this macro that nobody has any idea what's happening. So I think that's going to be a very interesting kind of convergence to watch there. Yeah. yeah. It's, so to your point, it's entirely possible that um, we've seen the end of the regular four-year cycles. It's entirely possible that this upcoming cycle will be either shorter or longer than the usual four years. It is. I would not. I would not bet against the four-year cycles yet. <laughs> I don't think we're there yet. Um, Chad, maybe if you could give us some insight into what folks are building right now, that'd be. I would. I would love to hear this. So you guys have gone through. Um, you guys are on all eleven. I think it is the eleventh yep. cohort. Um, yep. So big congrats on that. I remember when you guys were doing doing the first I appreciate one. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, what if, What are you guys seeing right now in terms of what folks are building in in all eleven? Yeah. Um, so. Things that you hear on Twitter is mostly right that there's a lot more infrastructure projects than um, consumer-facing products. Um, again, this is very cyclical, and it's historically this has been the case as well. That during bear markets, people build more infrastructure than consumer products. Um, and so, currently, by infrastructure, I mean, for example, again, scaling, right? Um, you know, uh, restaking, um, a share sequencer, like that kind of stuff, right? Uh, especially for the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, but there's also a lot of infrastructure around wallets um, uh, and account abstraction is a big driver of that. In general, I feel a little bit um, uninspired by the uh, startups on the consumer side. I think there's just fewer of them. Um, and I love to see more. And I love to see crazy ideas, ideas that 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 piss a lot of people off, um, ideas that are really creative, uh, that are potentially even outrageous, like social networks that embrace bots instead of uh, pushing bots away. <laughs> yeah, for example. Oh, by the way, um, so um, Nikita Beer, uh, this I don't know if you've I know uh, heard yeah. of him. Yeah, you yeah. know him. So he's uh, one of the legends in, in the consumer products in Web two, at Web two, and he tweeted something really interesting today which is that um, uh, it's about AI, but uh, I think it's also transferable to, to crypto. But what he said was that um, the AI consumer product startups are building something. Uh, most of them are building things that are too obvious. So for example, AI girlfriends. But uh, he, he also said that um, the truly good founders are, built, are using AI to bootstrap the, the, the critical mass for their dating app. If that makes sense. So you know, if you build a dating app, initially you have a huge uh, cold start problem, right? There's 
there's you need the supply and and, and the demand, basically the men and the women. So how do you bootstrap that cold start problem? You use AI to do it, you use bots to do it. Um, so um, yeah, just something really interesting that I, that I read today. I think that's right. And by the way, Nikita is about as smart as they get when it comes to building these consumer social apps, right? I think he started Gas App, sold to Discord. Uh, what was it? He sold another one, like the B app or something it was, I think. It's, it's the same app. And he <laughs> built it uh, within the span of like over five years. So, so like five years it's ago, sold, he built the first version. Sold, and then, two, sold one to Facebook, sold one to Discord, same app. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, legend. yeah, exactly. So, all right. So, um, so folks are building infrastructure. So I, so I, so I had a feeling that you were going to say that what, um, <clears throat> when they're building infrastructure, are they building, is this like more L2s? Is this account abstraction? Is this ZK? Is this what I'd almost call yeah. like, deep infrastructure tech um, that is like very technical? Is this more like, hey, we give you a seamless way to embed account abstraction into your wallet? Like, what, tell, tell me, let's double click on the infrastructure. All, all these things that you mentioned, uh, a lot of ZK, um, a lot of scaling layer two. Um, oh, you know, Celo uh, rebranded or not rebranded, but pivoted from being a layer one to layer two um, last I week. Know. I know, followed that very closely. I think I think that is first of many L1s actually that realize that managing your own nodes and validators is just a complete pain in the ass, and that it's uh, that it's just easier to share the security of Ethereum, and that yep. I, I think that I think that will continue happening for some of these other L1s. Yeah. What, what um, did you so think? Of, what, what did you think of that, Joe? Um, I think it's a. Uh... From from an outsider's point of view, it's a very intuitive um, pivot. It, it makes a lot of sense. Um, Ethereum is where the users are, and you want to capture those users. And the, the only way to do that is um, if you don't already have a lot of users like Solana does, uh, it's really obvious to pivot into an Ethereum layer two. Infrastructure, there's a lot of deep, deep tech in, in ZK, uh, scaling um, and scaling related. Um, but there's also wallet infrastructure around uh, account abstraction. I don't think that's super deep tech. Um, it's often uh, like wrappers around existing deep tech um, and, and making it very easy for developers to build on top of. Um, there's ZKML as well. There's uh, a niche of developers building um, products at the inter- or deep tech at the intersection of ZK and AI. For example, um, but yeah, that's what I'm seeing. Yeah, what um, I remember after I don't know if you guys still do this, but after recent cohorts, I think it was like six and seven and eight. You would send us, you would send uh, investors a message, and you're like, these are the these are where folks are building these. What these are what chains people are building on. Yep. These are what you know where they're building in the world. I'm I i do not know if yep. you guys share that data publicly still, but I'm very curious. Like, are folks building on L1s? Are they mostly building on L2s? Like, how are they making those choices? Maybe as much data as you guys have on that, I'd be very curious to hear it. So um, shortly after uh, FTX last year, um, Solana went from number three to number four. Um, so Solana has always been number three, uh, right behind Polygon and uh, the Ethereum mainnet. Um, and then when it went from number three to number four, it was Arbitrum that took Solana's place. So that was half a year ago. And then shortly after, um, 
people recovered. The Solana ecosystem recovered. So they went back to being number three, um, overtaking Arbitrum. But recently, they're back to number four again, uh, overtaken by Arbitrum again. So it, it's a battle between Solana and Arbitrum. I don't know how statistically significant the that ranking is, but um, I think the overall ranking hasn't changed. The, the, the big five, so it, the big fives are Ethereum, Minute, uh, Polygon, Solana, Arbitrum, Optimism. And they're far ahead of everyone else. Hmm. That lines up with how I would expect the market to be. Why do folks build on Ethereum mainnet instead of building on Arbitrum or Optimism? Um, I don't know, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. What are any? What about L threes? Like, are any? Is anyone looking at what DYDX is doing with Cosmos and saying maybe this is a better strategy for us? Maybe maybe we do need to own the, to own the full stack. Yeah. I I haven't seen anyone that adopted this same uh, strategy as Cosmos. Yeah, and um, I don't know what to make of the, that that's the DYDX strategy. It, if, We'll see. So they're going to launch. I don't know when they're going to launch their, their next version that's fully Cosmos based. That's the V4. I think it might be in a couple months. October. Maybe next month. October. Okay. So. Um, but uh, from the looks of it, you can use DYDX from any Ethereum based uh, wallets, including MetaMask. So, so I, I would imagine that the user experience will be very similar uh, as if Cosmos was on Ethereum. Oh, sorry, as if uh, DYDX was on Ethereum. Yeah. Yeah, because originally my, my, my biggest uh, worry was that they moved to Cosmos, but they now have access to a much smaller user base. But uh, from the UX, it doesn't seem that way. So I don't think they're cutting off the liquidity though to the to the ETH the ETH liquidity basically. So yeah. what um Chow what what uh, what types of founders are coming in? Is it I don't know if you saw Rob Leshner launch his new company Superstate, um, yeah. but that was a very in my mind in, encouraging development because you have this like very. Uh, very successful crypto founder. We're we're now at the stage of the market, or crypto has been a long, been around long enough, where you can have successful yep. crypto founders launching their second thing. Which, if you look at yep. back at you know tech over the last twenty years, a lot of the best companies started from founders who are not first time founders; they were second time or th even third time founders in tech. Um, yep. So it's very encouraging in my mind to see the Leshners of the world do this. I'm curious what yep. types of founders are coming into a, to to this cohort in the last couple of co co cohorts. Is it Web two is it crypto founders on their second run? Who who is it? There, there's always a small small percentage of very successful founders um, uh, in every cohort. So yeah. the next one there will be a founder that previously built a unicorn in Web two. The last cohort there was uh, someone who built a very successful crypto uh, uh, network. Uh, that, that was um, David Vorick from who who built um, Saya. Um, Tai used to be like top 10 coin on coin market cap. So every core, there is a small percentage of that. Um, but the more interesting trend is, uh, the next cohort, virtually all of them are crypto natives. Mm. Uh, not surprisingly compared to two years ago at, at the peak of the bull market, there was a lot of, uh, Fang engineers or web two people. Um, many of which have pivoted or uh, folded. Um, from from crypto, and I feel really good uh, today because at the peak of the bull market, I I always uh, worried about whether or not the, the founder will be committed to crypto. 
yeah. uh, when the bear market hits. Um, but today I'm, I'm not worried anymore because everyone is uh, crypto native and has been building for a long time in crypto. Yeah. yeah, it's been interesting to see people get wiped out. I mean, I, re I remember you had this tweet at the beginning of the year. You said for crypto professionals, the second year of the bear market tends to be the most painful one. It's the year of apathy. Yeah. There seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel. But simply being aware of this gives you a massive edge. Year three, things will get much better. And I've definitely seen that with companies that we uh, that I've invested in where there's this divergence of folks who maybe they've been in crypto for a while. They understand that this is just you got to grit it out. And then the new, new yeah. folks are, I mean, a couple of them have pivoted into AI. I'm like, guys, what are we doing here? So, Yeah, exactly. I'm seeing a, a far greater number of uh, pivots from crypto in the last few months. I've seen more pivots from crypto in the last few months than I've ever seen yeah. in, in the last four years. And I've also seen more co-founder breakups in the last few months Same. than I've ever seen. Same. The bear market is, very, is brutal. Very tough. Yeah. Um, what about... Uh, Huh. Yeah, that's really interesting. Why are, why, what, are, what is the dispute that founders have, do you think? Um, okay, this is a really good question. And I, I think not enough inv investors pay attention to this. Um, you know, I, I pay a lot of attention to the co-founder relationship um, of the co-founders. Ideally, there are a couple of people who have worked together for a long time in the past, um, you know, within the, the same company or uh, worked on like side projects together and have been friends. So that would be an ideal setup of co-founders because if they found each other uh, online, you know, some, sometime in the last six months, um, they're still in the honeymoon period and it's, their, their, their relationship will, will get tested in the bear market when things don't go well. And um, oftentimes it's really because um, the product doesn't grow and one of them just um, either loses conviction in crypto or conflicts arise between the co-founders. Growth solves every problem. And conversely, the lack of growth causes um, all sorts of co-founder conflicts. It's, re I, it's something that I never thought about when investing is the co-founder relationship. Because Mike, Mike and I have a very strong relationship and, you know, we went to, we went to college together. We were yep. roommates in New York for a while. We'd known each other for several years. We handle, I think when things do not go, when we, we disagree all the time, obviously as co-founders do, but I think we have a very good system of working out disagreements and we move through disagreements very, very quickly. But so I'd never, I'd never thought about like basically interviewing or assessing co-founder relationships until now we're deep into this market. I'm like, oh man, that's one of the main indicators, I would say, for how well a company ends up doing. Yep, agreed. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Tensor for a second. So I met the Tensor founders for the first time um, two weeks ago, maybe. Obviously, why? Uh, online. We were just, uh, okay. we were, we'd been exchanging DMs for a while on Twitter and we ended up jumping on a call and I'm a big fan of what they've built. And it's remarkably impressive how quickly they build and I just the market share that they've that they've grabbed basically in the NFT space in, in, in such a short amount of time with such a small team. I'm curious when you see a team like, do you, have you done this long enough now, Chow, that you can see someone like that? You can see that team and you're like, that's that's a winning team. They are going to do it. Or is this something that you have no idea? It's a complete you know, ran, random uh, 
random instance here where like that, you know, just one of your 50 companies ends up being very successful there. Yeah. Um, so after doing this for three years, I think I, I've developed um, some instinct for um, people like the Tensor guys. So matter of fact, we actually have a name for those people internally. Uh, we call them Tensorians. Um, <laughs> so we're always looking for founders that are that have the, the same characteristics as um, as the, the two co-founders of, of Tensor. Um, but it doesn't mean that we're, we're not open to other type, types of founders. But the archetypical founders we look for these days are, um, uh, you know, they're, they're fairly green. Uh, they, they're usually first-time founders because that, that's usually where we can make the most impact. Um, they think about problems deeply and they work extremely, extremely hard. So the Tensor guys, I don't think they sleep uh, and they work seven days a week. Truly. They, I was like, you know, I was asking, are you coming down to New York? They're like, why would we leave? I think they're in Toronto or something or Montreal. They're like, why would we leave here? We've got our computer. We've got our, our keyboard. Why would we? That, yeah. That's all you need. And I was like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, um, but, but the, the, the hard work part is very hard to um, gauge just from an interview. Um, you have to look at their past achievement. Yeah. But the, the thing that you can look for during the interview is how they think about the product, how they think about go-to-market. Do they have very unique insights about their users that, um, that I've never heard elsewhere? Um, again, like um, it, it sounds simple on, on paper, but uh, it's, most of it is really, really is a black box in, in my mind. Um, it's, um, it's like a neural network that, that I developed um, from the last, just doing this for, for three years. What are the characteristics if you're sitting down with Imran and Jacob and the team and you've got a whiteboard up and you write down five characteristics of tensorians, what's coming up there? Yeah. Uh, the single most important one is resilience. And that, it basically trumps everything else. Um, I think resilience is, is the only common uh, characteristic of every successful founder. Every founder is different, but resilience is the one characteristic that, that is common to everyone. Uh, so that's the one that we look for, but it's also the one that's the hardest to, to gauge from an interview again. Yeah. Um, but um, so th that would be number one. Number two would be um, unique insights into their users. So oftentimes uh, you, you hear about a super interesting narrative on, on Twitter. Uh, it, it sounds great, um, but you have to dive deeper. You have to, you have to understand, you have to see if the founders truly understand their users. Um, you have to go well below the surface. So unique insights into their users uh, is, um, is really uh, important. So to give you a concrete example, the, the unique insight that Tensor had about their users was that um, the vast majority of trading volume of NFTs came from speculators. So people who treated NFTs as shit coins, not the, the collectors. The collectors don't trade that much. It's the, it's the DGENs that, that trade a lot, uh, a lot in terms of number of transactions, but also in dollar amount. And you had to build a product that um, served these people really well. So that was the unique insight that, that Tensor had. By the way, it's the same insight as Blur. It's exactly the same. Right. What are, outside, um, outside of Tensor, what are, what are other, or go ahead, anything else on Tensor? No, go ahead. I was just going to say, any, any other successful companies that have come out of Alliance that you've like maybe gained a, a bit of insight into how you guys can make better investments moving forward? Um, 
So there were, um, here's another really interesting example. It's Stepan. Stepan came out of our program, I think the cohort before uh, Tensor. And um, what makes Stepan really interesting is their English is completely broken. And they would have a very hard time raising from um, American VCs. Um, I, uh, I chatted with them in Chinese. So the, wow. the, the cultural barrier and, and, the, uh, and the language barrier is, is real. Um, and I think it's an alpha that, that I have just because I, 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 so English is actually my, my third language. Um, before English, I, I, I mostly spoke French in my teenage years and Chinese in first hmm. 10 years. Of where, are you, so, where are you from, Chad? I grew up in Montreal. Huh. So Montreal is uh, bilingual, um, but mostly French. I actually never spoke, I didn't speak English on a regular basis until the age of 18. But anyway, so what I'm trying to say is there's an alpha about um, understanding the, this uh, cultural barrier uh, and, and break that, that barrier. So, um, but the Stepan guys have, they're, they're this, they have the same characteristics as, as Tensor in terms of resilience. So these guys also never sleep. They're based in Australia. They join our program, our, you know, our lectures at like 1 a.m. their time, um, week in, week out. Hmm. Uh, it's ridiculous, to be honest. Um, so, so resilience. Um, yeah, yeah, resilience and hard work. Um, one, more, one more question on, on, the, on the Alliance cohorts, and then we can move on to some of this AI conversation that I know we wanted to have. Um, it feels like we might be at, peak bull Asia bear US in crypto right now. Um, I'm curious what you what you're seeing in you know on the ground in terms of like where folks are building, where people are trying to get users. It feels like there's a lot of focus now on maybe Korea or Japan or renewed interest in Singapore. Hong Kong is opening back up. Um, yep. Everyone's very anti-US, the SEC is clamping down, CFTC, et cetera. Yeah. In my mind, it feels like we're kind of like, I would be betting on the U.S. right now. Um, but I'm very curious. What, but that might just be my like U.S. centric, grew up in the U.S. worldview that yeah. I want to have. I'm curious uh, both like what you think about that and then wh where like maybe on the data, like from the data, like where people are actually building. So I, I, cer I certainly thought this way a uh, couple of months ago that we were at the, you know, we're at peak Asia and bottom U.S., but I felt like the Bitcoin ETF news and the XRP news changed uh, things a lot. Um, so the, the very fact that it was Larry Fink, the, the BlackRock that, that filed for the Bitcoin ETF, um, uh, probably would change the, per the perception of a lot of people in the US from, from TradFi people to, to tech people. Uh, that was a huge positive for, for, for the US. And then same thing goes with the XRP news. Uh, it was a huge victory. Obviously, the dust hasn't fully settled. We'll see if the SEC will uh, appeal the decision. But uh, just from a perception point of view, I think the U.S. is actually uh, going back up. Um, and then, but in, in terms of uh, data, I don't have very good data. I don't have like clear data on who, um, you know, whether or not Asia is rising in terms of developer activities versus the US. Um, but I would say uh, 
a good portion of our applicants come from Asia, like maybe a third mm -hmm. of them. We're still mostly U.S. Like most of our applicants are still based in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Like I would say 50% of them are based in the U.S. And then maybe 20% based in uh, Europe and other regions. Oh, the one interesting thing, uh, one, there's two interesting trends that, that uh, emerged recently. One is Latin America. Mm. Uh, I think Latin America in terms of crypto adoption is maybe f a few years behind. I don't know uh, how much exactly, but there is um, a, a, far a far greater number of uh, Latin American founders building what the U.S. founders were building a few years ago for Latin America. So for example, on-ramp, off-ramp, Dubai is an, uh, another interesting one. There's a lot of founders based in Dubai. Um, so some people say there's uh, a lot of scammers in Dubai as well. Just I, I suppose there's a reason for that. Um, the the maybe the the taxes and and the you know other uh, uh, other laws. But uh, there there's more and more founders based in Dubai, hmm. and there's certainly more and more founders based in Hong Kong. Hey everyone, we'll get back to Empire in just a minute, but before we do that, I wanna let you know that we have Permissionless coming up. Permissionless is big conference that Blockworks and Bankless put on together. It is the biggest, the best DeFi conference in crypto. This year, it is in Austin, Texas, September 11th through 13th. If you've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best kind of conferences. We have a phenomenal lineup of speakers. A lot of the guests that you hear on Empire are both going to be speaking there. You will have the opportunity to meet them there. And a lot of the topics that we cover on Empire, ZK Tech, Rollups, Account Abstraction, MEV, AppChain Thesis, a lot of that kind of stuff that will all be discussed at Permissionless this year. So because you are a listener of Empire, you get a special discount. That's right, Santi and I negotiated with our marketing team you get 30% off if you go to blockworks.com forward slash permissionless. Empire 30 is going to get you 30% off your ticket. Today, when I'm recording this, that's about $300 off your ticket. So type in Empire 30 when buying your permissionless ticket, you get about 300 bucks off. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. It's in the show notes. Do it quickly because prices go up all the time. And if you are going to permissionless, hit me up. Let me know. Shoot me a DM on Twitter. I would love to meet up with you there. Let's face it. Concentrated liquidity is hard. And that's why I'm super excited to partner with Carbon for Empire. Carbon is a new DEX on Ethereum that makes concentrated liquidity easy. With Carbon, LPs can now automate your liquidity strategy with custom on-chain limit orders and range orders. Want to buy a token when it dips and sell it when it spikes? With Carbon, you can now set a strategy that buys in on one price range and sells in a higher range on repeat using a single source of automated rotating liquidity. Strategies can be created for any standard ERC-20 token. I recently checked out the Carbon Beta that just dropped, pretty blown away by the liquidity strategies that Carbon enables on-chain. It has these rich trading features that you'd expect from a centralized exchange, except Carbon is fully on-chain, decentralized, and non-custodial. Just connect your wallet. It's carbondefi.xyz. That's carbondefi.xyz. Choose a trading pair, set your buy and sell ranges and amounts, hit create, and you're done. Carbon automatically moves your liquidity into your selected ranges as the market moves. LPs, it is time to take back control of your liquidity with Carbon. Check out the link and get started today. Now, let's get back to Empire. 
Chow, let's move away from Alliance and let's talk about uh, let's talk about AI for a little bit. I think um, I even yeah. I, I got a little smile on my face saying AI. You got a little smile. I think one of the reasons we just in, like uh, subconsciously smiled there is it feels like this kind of like hypey thing and even like bringing up like oh this convergence of AI and crypto. It feels very I don't know just fluffy. I would say maybe if you could tell me like you know the Gartner hype cycle. You know big up down slowly comes back up. Where do you think that we yeah. are on the on the Gartner hype cycle for AI right now? I actually tweeted about this uh, probably two months ago. Uh, it felt like we're at the peak, but it, I did caveat that um, the bottom might last only a few months because AI is moving really, really fast. Um, so today, so two months after my, my tweet, it feels like a lot of people are disillusioned with uh um, with uh, the current state of AI, especially the consumers. If you look at the, the Google trends, um, the uh, search for ChatGPT has been going down for the last couple of months. Um, and then there's also a very, very interesting study on how the performance of ChatGPT has gone down in, in the last few months. Um, I thought that was really interesting. Um, but anyway, that's a, that's a different topic. Um, so the performance, it feels like- Performance of ChatGPT, like it's- how good it is at actually doing its tasks is getting worse. Right. So uh, how good it is in terms of doing math, in terms of like just doing some basic uh, uh, tasks um, went down a lot over the last few months. And we were actually discussing this internally last night uh, about the like what are the hypotheses as to why this, this has been happening. So one of the hypotheses that we've seen, we saw on Twitter is that so OpenAI uses this thing called the uh, um, uh, reinforcement learning with human feedback. So the human feedback is the important is the keyword here. So when OpenAI first launched, uh, there was the, all the human feedback they they had to train their model was their internal staff. But once they've launched um, the product, there's like hundreds of millions of people uh, providing this feedback mm-hmm. uh, back to OpenAI, and those people are. I don't know, they destroy the model somehow. I don't really buy this hypothesis, but I can see it. Um, but another, more, I think, more plausible hypothesis is that um, OpenAI is prioritizing AI safety versus performance. Mm. So they actively dumb down the, uh, um, the model itself uh, just so people don't do crazy shit with a, a very powerful tool. So that's another po- plausible um, uh, hypothesis. Obviously, the OpenAI people have uh, denied these things, but anyway, so that's, um, uh, it's just uh, overall the, this degradation of performance um, leads people to feel a little bit more disillusioned with AI in the last couple of months. Uh, so I feel like there, there has been a little bit of a sentiment change, mm. but that, that's just my, my perception. I don't know if um, other people see the same thing. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right there. Um... So just for, for background, from our past conversations, I think like one of the reasons that maybe you're qualified to talk about this is you, I mean, you have a decade of experience building some of these models. I don't think you like, maybe it's not necessarily neural networks because you were mainly working in like building model tra- uh, trading models in finance where neural networks yeah. don't, either they don't really work or they're just too hard. But I, you know, you, you have about a decade of building models. I'm curious how you think yeah. about, um, like when I think about the, you know, when I see like, headlines about the intersection of AI and crypto. And when I try to think about it, I've kind of bucketed it into three buckets in my mind. There's 
AI that ends up helping with the AI that helps companies and people inside of companies build better products. Maybe this is AI mm -hmm. that helps developers move 10x faster. This is AI that helps customer support chat bots on the website. That's like, that's one bucket in my mind. Then there's a more, yep. probably two other, like maybe more technical buckets, which is kind of decentralizing AI and looking at that from, from two different angles. There's the, um, uh, there's like the compute, like decentralizing compute. I know the Multicoin guys invested in a company called Render, been looking into them. Like there's decentralized compute. Uh, there's, uh, I guess maybe there's another bucket. There's, there's training, right? There's like the, how do you decentralize the training of the AI? And then there's, how do you decentralize like the, whatever the front end is on the AI? Inference. The inference. Yeah. Thank you. There's like decentralizing that. So I don't know, like, how do you, what do you think about those buckets? Is that, are you, do you agree with those buckets? Or are you ex more excited about one of those buckets than the other? Are those fair buckets yep. to put this into? So th the first bucket that you mentioned uh, is, uh, it applies across every company. It's not just a crypto thing. So yeah. like helping developers become more pr productive, helping companies do better customer engagement, customer support, that applies to everywhere, uh, not just crypto. And I actually think that um, helping developers become more productive, that is the single most important, by far the single most important use mm. case of GPT. And it's not even close. I, I know this from personal experience. Last week, um, we actually had an internal hackathon. And so we spent like three days together for our offside. And one of the three days, we spent a whole day uh, on an AI hackathon. So all of us build stuff. Uh, for, for Alliance. And um, it's really incredible because we only had maybe five technical t people on our team out of like 20. But um, the vast majority of, of non-technical people hmm. uh, wrote code thanks to GPT. And they wrote code that worked. It's really impressive. And there are two, so more specifically, there are two things. Um, so when you write a piece of code, um, well, the first thing you need to do is architect sort of how the code works. And then the second part, is, I'm really simplifying this, but the second part is writing the actual code itself. Um, so GPT is really, really good at the second part, which is you architect the whole thing. You, you write out the fun functions, but you ask GPT to write the functions for you. So that, that in itself is a 10x improvement. And I, I know I experienced this personally. Um, 10x improvement in terms of speed of uh, writing a, a piece of code that actually works. But then there's a second piece, which is called the code interpreter of uh, ChatGPT. I don't know if you've heard of it. You, um, it. I think it came out a couple months ago, but uh, last week was the first time I tried it. But this part, it does the architecting for you. So you don't even need to architect the... the the code in your head, you can just tell GPT what you want to do in plain English. And it'll do the architect, architect, the code interpreter will do the architecting for you and the writing of the code for you. So this, this is another 10x improvement in terms of speed. So overall for me, it was like 100x improvement. It, it's really mind boggling, it's really impressive. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, the, the, the AI. Chad, let me let me let me let me show you this. Yeah. I uh, I will share my screen here. I don't know how to. I've never built anything in Python. 
I've never written a line of code in Python. I wanted to build a game of, of Pong. You know, the game, the yeah. very simple game Pong. Yeah. And I just, without any knowledge of Pong, I typed into GBT. I, I said, I want to build Pong. Pull it up in VS Code. Um, I, I had like one 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 window with GBT3 or GBT35 or whatever, or four, four maybe, I forget which one it was. And then another with just like the area where I was putting the code in. And I just said, I want to build Pong. I have no idea how to do it. I barely, all I know is HTML and CSS and a little JavaScript. Never written anything in Python. Teach me how to do it. So it said, here's, here's what you do, pull it up. And it would give me code to put in. And I would, you know, play around with that. I'd do some Googling. I'd put it in. And you can see here, if you can see that, I, th I think you can see my screen right now. I would say, I would say, look, there's an error right here. And it would say, oh, this error me message is missing two required positional arguments, X and Y, which means this is what that means. Make sure to pass the correct values for X and Y for each paddle in your game. And I asked it, I said, so should I replace this line with this line? And it said, no, you should replace this line with this line. After a couple, took me about three hours, maybe two hours, maybe I forget one, one to three hours. I had a working Pong game yep. and you can see this tweet here. It says, I just built Pong using Python entirely from ChatGPT. Whenever I got an error, I would put it in ChatGPT and would both explain it and fix it. I know Pong is basic, but being able to build this, it took me all right less than one hour without ever having written Python feels incredible to me. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, the, the three hours you took would otherwise take, I don't know, at least a month for you to learn Python and you know write off. Right. <laughs> right. So, um, I think GPT is a, so the more uh, beginner of a developer you are, uh, the more uh, GPT can, can help you. Um, so I think GPT is less of an improvement for the experienced, for the 10X developers. But it, so, so GPT might be a 5% improvement for the 10X developers, but a 10X improvement for the 1X developer and a 100X improvement yeah. for the 0.1 developer, like, like, like yourself. Like and, me. <laughs> like me. No. Yeah. I'm glad I'm glad I'm a 0.1x engineer. That's great. That's great. Crypto for the last decade has been focused on decentralizing money and like decentralizing value, right? Like Bitcoin, like decentralizing money. Um now it feels like there's this new conversation happening, which is decentralizing AI. Yeah. Maybe could you tell me in your mind why you feel that that is important? Um, it's important for the same reason as to why um money should be decentralized as to why social networks should be decentralized, as to why finance should be decentralized, which is that you don't want these powerful models to be controlled by one, one um, central entity. And by the way, we just experienced this where OpenAI probably uh, dumbed down their models for all their consumers, for, for all their customers, whereas they internally have the most powerful model still. So, they decide, they're the kingmakers. They decide who gets the access to the powerful models and who doesn't, right? So you don't want to give this much power um, to one central entity. That's, that's the whole idea behind um, uh, decentralized AI. And a very closely related notion is privacy. Um, today, when you interact with uh, ChatGPT, you send them a lot of personal data and they know everything about you. Um, and it just f doesn't feel great. Um, so the idea of uh, decentralized AI is to solve these two problems. Now, there's many ways to do that. Um, to me, on the inference side, um, the most intuitive way is to uh, what they call edge computing, edge AI. And by edge AI, they mean uh, running an open source 
model on your local device. So all the compute happens on your local device um, within an open source piece of software rather than um, being run on the cloud at OpenAI. And this achieves uh, the two goals that we had before, which is that one, the user owns the model because it's open source, and two, the, the user owns their data because they don't send the data to the cloud to OpenAI. So this edge computing is the most intuitive way to solve this. Obviously, there's arguments against whether or not consumer-grade hardware is powerful enough to run the most powerful models in the world. Um, maybe we're not there yet, but there are good enough of uh, open source models and efficient enough of open source models. By the way, uh, Facebook and um, open source, their, their Llama model uh, yeah. last, last uh, I think last week, um, and there was a collaboration with Microsoft even. I didn't read into the exact news, but the, 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 the very concept of edge computing solves the decentralization problem. Now, there's another problem, which is, um, which is not about privacy or self-sovereignty. It's more about a very pragmatic issue today, which is the lack of GPUs. GPUs are in massive shortage because everyone wants GPUs. Everyone needs GPUs to train powerful models. Everyone needs GPUs to do inference. By everyone, I mean the big tech, the casual developers, the, the, the casual hackers uh, to build um, products off of um, the, those, those uh, open source uh, LLM models. So there's a mass, massive shortage of GPUs. So, so the decentralized AI in this context tries to solve this problem by allowing the average consumer to participate in the compute network uh, by offering their consumer grade GPUs from their laptop. So for example, the, the laptop you're working on now uh, is probably not being used 24 seven. So when it's idle, you can contribute that com uh, compute resource to the network and help um, the developers to uh, leverage the GPUs to train their models or to do uh, inference. So this is um, the, the, the GPU shortage problem. Does this make sense? That feels like the that feels like the modern day version of the 2017 Filecoin thesis. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's exactly the thesis for behind Filecoin before GPUs. And so, so it, it's it's uh, and... the thesis behind Filecoin is for sh is for storage, but uh, now we're doing what Filecoin does for storage before AI for for GPUs. Yeah. Hmm. I think there's a clear counter argument though that might be stronger than the benefit there, which is um, decentralized compute has this extreme disadvantage of being slower, right? In ML training, because at least my basic understanding of it is like you have this horrible communication overhead between a bunch of different types. So like I've got my laptop, it might be different than your laptop, which is different than this person's laptop. And you're there's this like communication overhead between these different computing devices. And for anyone building an AI, you were saying like this kind of AI bear market might be slow because of how quickly people are moving. And I think speed is like one of the number one advantages for any AI company company building today. So if you're telling me you've got, maybe you can make it cheaper or whatever it is, but it's going to be 10 times slower. There's no way that I'm taking that trade off. Yep. I'm curious what you think. I, of that. I, th I think you're spot on. So, so this is a very valid counter argument against uh, the whole idea of decentralized compute uh, or GPU, decentralized GPU compute. Um, 
a, a, a very related counter argument is that the hardware that's used for training um, the LLM models at OpenAI are way more powerful than the average consumer grade hardware. Uh, and they're also more standardized, more specialized. And so the, the, the counter argument is basically that, that the consumer grade hardware, consumer grade GPU is not powerful enough to train the super large models. Now, the counter counter argument is um, maybe we don't need this decentralized AI compute uh, to train the, the, the open AI kind of models. We can use the decentralized compute to train smaller models or to, or to fine tune a, a large model. So the, it, it's the kind of work mm. that doesn't require as much compute. So mm. I, I see the, counter mar- the, the, the arguments and the counter arguments on both sides. And overall, I, th- I think that the counter arguments against decentralized AI or decentralized compute are valid, but if they're wrong, they can be really wrong, right? As in, if, if decentralized compute does work, it can be a really big idea because there is just a massive shortage of GPUs. So the, the mm. payoff is, is very asymmetric in, in my opinion. Hmm. I guess you could see, yeah, you could see a world like, I think my computer right now is running this M1 chip. Then, you know, I haven't, I, the, you know, Apple's got the M1 and the M2s, right? You could see a world where like, you're basically running these powerful enough chips and which are really like kind of GPUs on, on, your, on your laptop. And it gets fat and it gets exponentially better and better and better. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm, that's interesting. Um, so de- there's decentralized compute. Um, then there's the, then there's more like the inference and like the mod, the, or excuse me, then there's like the training and like building it, which is, was it, uh, listening to an interesting conversation about kind of the, the chat GBTs of, that are getting built in China right now. And how, if you type in something like, you type in like, what is the best political system yeah. into the thing? It's like, oh, like, you know, communism is the perfect version and this is the, and it's like, but to me that, I mean, that seems nuts. But like, if I typed in like on chat GBT, like what is the perfect version of, uh, what is the perfect political system into this GBT four, it's gonna be like democracy because of these reasons. And the reason it's pulling from that is because it's mainly pulling from, you know, US or English centric sources. So maybe there's like a, it sounds like that's another version of decentralizing like the sources or what, help me contextualize like how you think about that version of this. Decentralize the the data set that is used in training basically. Um, Because it's garbage in, garbage out. If you feed the model training with a very politically biased um, data set, then output will be a very politically biased model. Um, So, I've seen, um, I don't know if it was actual data or it was just opinions, but the, the average internet is leans more liberal than conservative, conservative which mm-hmm. would make sense because uh, the liberals, at least in the US, are generally more educated. So they use the internet more. Uh, the, I think the, the majority of social networks are more liberal than conservatives. Um, and, and the data, the content from those social networks are what uh, OpenAI uses uh, to train their models. Again, this is a problem with centralization, right? OpenAI can choose what kind of data they want to use uh, to feed their model. When I use uh, GPT, I, I clearly see, I clearly feel a political bias towards, uh, you know, liberals. Um, Very much so. Yeah. Hmm. Where does crypto tie into all of this? 
Chow? Because what is the, are we talking about using tokens as to, to enforce some of the learning here or and to speed this to exchange value? What is the, what is the crypto element here? I don't know if there's a crypto element. I, I wish there was, but pragmatically, how do you use tokens to incentivize a more politically neutral or more politically diverse content? I, I find it very hard to do. I mean, conceptually, yes, but pra- pragmatically, it feels really hard. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like maybe a 2017 version of like putting, you know, healthcare records on the blockchain right? We're kind of trying to throw a blockchain at everything six years ago. And now maybe we're trying to throw throw kind of crypto AI at everything. Um, so then where is the kind of crypto application here for, for AI? Yeah. So the uh, decentralized compute is something we talked about earlier, but there's also yeah. um, using crypto to digitally assign um, content uh, to fight deep fakes, for example. So, for example, this podcast that, that we're recording, um, after the re- recording, you can sign on the Ethereum blockchain, uh, uh, or you can provide a signature on the Ethereum blockchain that this podcast was produced really by Jason. And you can put your public key on your Twitter profile that people, people can use to verify the, 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 the digital signature. So this is another very important application. I don't know who should be building this, I don't know if it's the job of a startup or it's the job of the big tech, hmm. um, but this is a this will be a very important application, um, especially with the elections coming up next year. There will be a lot of deepfakes, uh, a lot of you know AI generated content um, to influence the um, the results of the election, for example. So basically, what you're talking about here is crypto offering like this kind of. I think you tweeted about this a little bit ago that I saw offering like a checks and balances against AI, right? Via like digital signatures to battle deep fakes and zero knowledge proofs to to kind of protect privacy here. That that's the bucket that you're excited about. Yep. So that that that's the good thing that that crypto can provide to AI is is the checks and balances. But there is also a, a flip side, which is that uh, crypto is a permissionless um, platform. And the permissionless platform can be used by AI agents. So you can think of, so fundamentally AI agents are, are programmable, so they can leverage other interfaces to do things that they want. So one of the interfaces that you can use is the blockchain. And they can do this permissionlessly. So, if, so for example, they can use ETH as the AI native money, or they can interact with uh, DeFi, or they can play games and if they do that, uh, they can do that permissionlessly and no one can stop them. So that can get a little bit scary. Um, so currently mm-hmm. AI agents don't do much, but if you give them the ability to do permissionless programming on chain and give them a unstoppable form of money, which is, for example, ETH in this case, I don't know what they're going to do uh, with mm-hmm. this uh, type of uh, capability. So I went into the WorldCoin offices a couple of months ago. Um, mm-hmm. And met met one of their founders, not not Sam Altman, but the but the other one, uh, Alex uh, Blanya, and he was kind of painting this vision of the future, which said, "Look, ChatGPT four, you, I mean, right now you just put in a prompt onto onto this kind of user interface and it spits out an answer." He goes, "What GPT six and seven and eight will look like is you're giving you are giving it not just read access but write access to your computer. Yes. So I can type in." 
hey, go go farm um, go farm GMX right now. Okay. Just go, just go, just go farm GMX with ten with ten thousand bucks, and it's gonna know the perfect far, uh, farming strategy. It's gonna be like, look, there's an airdrop coming up based on all this data. There's probably an airdrop coming up in in in, in this month. I'm gonna go farm all these tokens. Here are the best farming strategies, and if you give it the right access, it's gonna be able to do that for you. And if you extend that out, what you could see is we think that like there are bots, bots on Twitter right now are a problem. That problem is going to get 1 million times worse. It is going to grow by orders of magnitude because you're going to be able to give your AI, your like little AI assistant access to your social and access like basically write access. So, but what it sounds like you're talking about is. No, I, what, what I'm talking about is exactly that. So when you give, give AI not just read access, but also write access to the blockchain, things can get really interesting. That's interesting. I mean, so the world coin, this guy Alex's take on this would be that you need, you need like a crypto wallet. You need to scan the eyeball to digitally verify, basically like verifying who is a human online is going to become an, an incredibly tough challenge and that we have to do that. I think there's probably another take here though, which is that, there are going to be some billion dollar companies that are built on the back of embracing these bots. I don't even know if I want to call them bots. I would like just these, these, these AI agents. And instead of trying to turn them all away, they lean into them and they say, look, these are the new, these are, the, these are our new users, basically. Like what you were mentioning with Nikita, yeah. with Nikita's tweet. It's like, these are our new users. Like instead of pushing them away and trying to, you know, play whack-a-mole with bots, it's like, what if we just said, these are our users now and we embrace them. I don't know. That's an interesting thought process that you've, that you've sparked there. It, the, embracing AI is um, probably one of the two most interesting things I can think of for consumer crypto products. Mm. Uh, the other one being embracing hyper-financialization. Because, um, you know, trading shit coins, speculating is, is the one thing that, that crypto really enables um, for, for the mainstream. So I think um, it'd be really fun for crypto consumer products to embrace that, to try things that are related to speculation, to hyper-financialization. But the other thing that they should try is to embrace the, the AI um, bots. Um, mm. But the, I've just been thinking about this, um, like, you know, I think a lot of people are disillusioned about why, you know, it's been 10 years, we still haven't seen a, consumer product in crypto that has reached the mainstream. And so I tried to brainstorm ideas for just startups to try. And these two things came to mind. I don't know if they'll work, but I think they're worth trying. Yeah. Yeah. What, I mean, what does this look like maybe with a social network, um, like a web, web three social, what, what, like maybe paint a picture of what you think this looks like. Let's take it one step further. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to say. Yeah. Um, I think a, a more a better example I can give you is um, uh, is DeFi really. Uh, DeFi summer, to me, is still the most magical moment in the entire history of, of crypto. I, I probably signed more transactions that summer than I've ever done in the last ten years, like probably by by order of magnitude. Um, and I think um, I, I think a lot of people felt the, the same way. A lot of people felt that DeFi Summer was really a moment of magic. Um, 
And I think DeFi Summer worked because it un unapologetically embraced speculation and yeah. hyper-financialization. And the whole DeFi Summer was a game. It was not really finance. I mean, finance in itself is, is really is a game. It, yeah. DeFi Summer was, was a DeFi game. DeFi Summer was all one big game. I agree. I agree. It was one big yeah. game and it was social, except that, that the social interactions happened mostly on Twitter. It was so fun, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of want to see the same um, consumer behavior on uh, crypto social networks. So, something that, that feels really degen, something that feels crazy, potentially outrageous. So yesterday, the hamsters race, I'm sure you've seen it. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. Um, so I want to see stuff like weird things like that. Hmm. I wonder if, yeah, I wonder if we're going to start seeing more like social tokens kind of as well come out. Like, you know, you know, one, one, one like version of betting basically that already happens is I find an Instagram account and I, you know, maybe it's, I, or I find a, an artist on Spotify and they're really small, or I find an Instagram account with 5,000 followers. And I think it's really cool. When that account gets to a hundred thousand followers, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm telling my friends that I found, I'm like, oh, I found that account at 5,000. You'll, you got to imagine you'll be able to kind of bet on accounts yep. and like more financialization of like tweets. And I, I, I like that tweet when it was only at 10 likes, it's now viral. Like yep. I was early on that tweet. I was early on that account. So uh, coincidentally, I was actually thinking about this yesterday. So there was a product that um, uh, came out of China in 2017. It was a product where you can, as, as a consumer, you can book time with um, a celebrity and then you can speculate on the time. So when you, it, you can almost think of it as an NFT, except it was not NFT, but you can think of it as an NFT that represents like 30 minutes of conversation with this celebrity. And you can buy that right, that, that NFT that gives you the right to have that 30 minute conversation. And once you've bought that NFT, you can be traded on the open market. Mm. So if that person, if the celebrity um, you know, commits to the conversation and, you know, uh, you know, provides interesting insights to, to their uh, fans, then you, you, you could imagine that the price of the NFT goes up over time because people will want that uh, thing more often uh, or uh, they want that uh, more uh, to chat with the, um, the celebrity. So this is another way to speculate on the value of a uh, celebrity or creator. Chad, do you know what intro.com is? Yes. So intro.com uh, is ex exactly that without the speculation, I think. Without the speculation. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. But I would love to see the speculation because that's what crypto uniquely enables. I heard you and Fauda talking about um, AI agents and it sparked this really interesting, I just like start, went down this kind of deep dive of like AI agents and one AI hiring another AI. And then you've got this kind of master AI, which is maybe like your assistant AI and that AI hi hires other AIs. Can you explain this to me and, yeah. and maybe tie in like how you need crypto rails to enable that world? Okay. So AI agents, just to be upfront, I don't have a strong thesis about it. I don't know how it'll play out, but what happened was uh, a few months ago, there was a VC that built a open source uh you know, sort of a, a, a MVP um, where you as a user, you can launch a AI agent and you can tell them what to do. So for example, you can tell them um, uh, start a podcast, 
right? How to st start a podcast for me. And then the AI agent would um, first research what are the, what are the steps needed uh, to start the podcast. And then it'll break um, the, 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 the original task into those steps and then it'll iterate from step one to step two, and et cetera, et cetera. And then for each step, it'll break th that task uh, even further and then do things on the internet to do more research or sometimes to have this right access that we said earlier to, to actually do things, to transact, to hire other agents, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a really fun experiment that, that the VC did. But I think the hype kind of died down pretty quickly. Um, so I don't know where it's going now. It's certainly a very interesting experiment um, to have these autonomous AI agents that can do things that can break tasks down for you and to execute those tasks. Hmm. Can we zoom way out here, Chow? Like, is this, um, why, do you why do you remain excited and optimistic about all of this? AI or, or crypto? Um, I think all of it. I mean, I think there's a, if someone's listening to this and they're hearing AI, AI, AI agents, here's a version of someone who's listening. I'm yeah. hearing about AI agents, AI hiring a, other AI, yeah. social networks that are populated with millions and eventually billions of AI bots, yeah. games that aren't P2P with people, but are P2P with AI. It doesn't sound like a super fun world to no. live in, I would say. <laughs> uh, even for me, the the eternal optimist and the 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 someone who just always has believed that technology enables a better world. Yeah. Even I hear this and I'm like, this doesn't sound like an, an incredible world to live in. Why do you remain ex either excited and or optimistic about this? Okay, so uh, I'm where I'm optimistic is something really specific, which is the 10x developer thing that we mentioned earlier. Because mm -hmm. I, I felt it personally. I, yeah. Again, I think it's by far the single most important use case of GPT. It's not even close. Um, everyone can code now and everyone can code much faster. Um, and it's much easier for startups to launch um, MVPs with GPT than it used to be. That's why I'm really excited about this. It basically brings the, the cost of launching products down by an order of magnitude potentially for, um, for developers. And it's going to be a really interesting world. It's going to, uh, I think, um, uh, uniquely um, benefit the idea man, right? Like people who have good ideas, but not necessarily have the ability to code their ideas into actual products. With GPT, if you have good ideas, you can implement them uh, much e easier than, than it used to. That's the most important thing I'm excited about, uh, about AI. Everything else I feel like it's a work in progress. Um, I don't have a strong thesis yet. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Ciao. Awesome conversation, man. I, I love talking to you about this stuff. Any, anything else that we're from, you know, either where we're at in the market, AI, Alliance, and the things that you guys are seeing in the trends, anything else that we haven't, that you wanted to cover that we haven't covered? Um, I think we've covered most things. Um, I, I just think it's, uh, I think it's a great time to be in crypto right now. You know, two years ago during the bull market, I felt a lot of stress. It was really, every bull market is very stressful for me. Like I'm constantly thinking about when to exit the market. And then you, as an investor, you constantly think about, is this person going to be here for, for a long time? Are they going to commit to crypto?
But now everything is a lot easier. Like everyone who's still today, who's still here today talking about crypto, you know they're committed to crypto. Yeah. Um, it's uh, also uh, more, it's for the most part, a contrarian place to be. And I feel very comfortable being in an in a environment like this. Yeah, I agree with you. I was at the office with a bunch of our team uh, a week ago, two weeks ago, whenever the Ripple SEC thing happened. And um, my first thought was pure elation and excitement yeah. because that's a that's one of those moments that can bring you out of a bear market, I think, is that Ripple SEC thing. My second thought was frustration that the bear market was ending. I just just wanting to hang on a little bit longer for this blissful time in the market where everything feels so simple and knowing that the chaos will, before we know it, be here. So I, I share your thoughts. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, wishing you guys all the best. I will, uh, and I will talk to you soon. I'm sure we'll have you on again soon. Thanks for the time. Thanks.